Lord, as we've just been led, to open our hearts to you, to acknowledge that we do not know what we need to say or ask. Let us be open to your word that we might be changed by it. For your sake. Amen. I apologize, I'm going to take this out. As said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today, you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah 
So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. I've acted in a, a few plays during my lifetime and have often been the one, uh, one of the people out on the stage for the, the acting. And, and when you are doing that, when you're out on the stage and, and you're the one people are looking at, what they don't recognize is quite often there's a whole team of people behind the scenes. And, and your act, your performance is completely dependent upon the people behind the scenes doing their work. Quite frankly, this happens every week here, in case you haven't noticed. There's a team of people who sit back there, and, and they actually show up before the service, before most of you are here, to set up the sound and to make sure that the projection systems are working and both slides are working in synchronization with each other. And that's actually a little more tricky than you might imagine. And we have a whole team of people who on Sunday mornings don't even come into the sanctuary. They work behind the scenes taking care of the kids in the nursery. And they spend this morning's worship serving all of us by attending to our children and discipling them in there. There are many other things that go on behind the scenes and so often we just kind of skim past them or don't really take the time to acknowledge them. There's something that goes on, though, in a story when, when the people who are behind the scenes don't follow through on what they're supposed to do. And in this story of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, there's something that, that has been going on behind the scenes for more than a decade that suddenly comes to the forefront. I don't know if you caught it, but, but there's, there's an introduction of a new character who actually begins to speak in this chapter. He's an unnamed person, a, a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. He was someone who was supposed to be there for Elimelech's family. 
And he was supposed to be there and provide for them if something went wrong. And if he didn't have the resources himself, he was to turn to the rest of the family, the extended family, and say, come help me because Elimelech and his family have fallen on hard times. It's our responsibility to come around them. He was in many ways the behind-the-scenes support for Elimelech and Naomi and their children. But in this story, we begin to recognize that he hasn't been there. If you paid attention all the way from Ruth chapter 1 to where we are in Ruth 4, there's a whole transition that happens just for a few sentences at the beginning. There was a famine in the land. And because of that famine that was in Israel, Elimelech took his wife and his two sons and they went to Moab, to a foreign land. They should never have had to leave. There should have been this support, this unnamed kinsman redeemer should have been there saying, I know you're having a hard time. The whole land is having a hard time. Let's pool our resources. Let's come around you so you don't have to leave. He should have been the one who, who went after them, actually, and went out to the foreign land and said, come back home, we've got you. Come on back. We're going to take care of you. For ten long years, he wasn't there. And then Naomi and Ruth come back into the land, and they come back into this land, and they're expecting to find some sort of life here. And they work the land. Boaz takes care of them. But it wasn't really Boaz's first responsibility. He was back in the line a little ways. This unnamed guy was supposed to be there for them. He was supposed to be that background, behind-the-scenes support coming alongside them. And the first time we hear from him, he's walking into the city of Bethlehem. He's known all along what's going on. For six months, he's known they're in the land living off of Boaz's generosity and he's kind of wiped his hands of it, said, ah, someone else has got him. I don't even have to think about them. Boaz comes up to him. Friend, cousin, come here. Let's have a seat. Come sit down at the city gate with me. I need to tell you what's been happening just to make sure that you know and, and I want to invite you to do what you should have been doing for the last decade or more. Come, take care of Naomi. And when the mention of land is thrown into it, he's all for that. Did you notice that? Oh, there's property? There's something for me to gain? Of course I'm in. I'll gladly fulfill my responsibility because I see how I'm going to benefit from this. It's going to be good for me, right? And then he hears, and you need to take Ruth, the foreigner. And you need to have her as your wife and, and have children. <laughs> Suddenly, it doesn't look so promising to him those children that he might have eventually had with Ruth would be ones who would have a right to inherit this new land that he was thinking he was going to get. And it, it really wouldn't benefit him or his kids. And he said, yeah, you know what? That's not for me. There's nothing good that can come out of that. It, 
it's only going to be pain and heartache. I don't want anything to do with it. You see what he's doing? He's calculating, should I remain faithful to God and, and what God's called me to do for this family? And should I do it? But I, I've got to figure out if it's going to benefit me. His obedience to God, his desired faithfulness is completely dependent upon how it's going to turn out for him. Part of me would like to condemn him. Part of me would like to sit there and wag my finger and go, oh yeah, I know your type. But isn't his type what we often live with? In what ways, I wonder, are we more interested in our own material comfort, in our own security, than in following God at all costs? In what ways are we interested, more interested, in our own material security than following God at all costs? There's a movement that's been around for quite a long time, but it's gained particular speed among Christians within North America. We sometimes shorthand it and call it the wealth and prosperity gospel. It's a gospel that says, God will bless you, come follow him. If you just obey God, he will, he will take care of all your earthly needs. You'll never suffer anymore. It's actually quite profound in the states. There's a couple congregations that have over 20,000 people worshiping with them on a Sunday morning, all surrounding this message. If you follow God the way I'm telling you to follow God, God's going to give you more blessings than you can handle. And they're going to be earthly blessings. You're going to have money and a secure job and friends, and, and you're never going to suffer. Just trust me, follow God, and you can have the best life you've ever imagined possible. There's something attractive about that. There's something attractive about being able to, to follow God and get earthly riches and blessings for it. I wonder if we've understood the grace that God has given. There's a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How many have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and he wrote it in the context of Nazi Germany, a place where, where there was all sorts of oppression, but all sorts of invitation to the church to come and endorse the popular party, the Nazi party. And many in the church went along with it. They joined with, with the Nazi party and affirmed what the Nazi party was doing because it gave them material blessings. It gave them access and power and all sorts of riches. And Bonhoeffer wrote in that context that if we believe that is what the gospel is about gaining riches and wealth, we've misunderstood the gospel. In fact, that's just a cheap version of grace. He wrote instead about the costly grace that we're called into. And I wonder, how are we going to respond to that type of costly grace? Here's something Bonhoeffer said, and I'll leave it up for a moment as I read it. This grace is costly because it costs a man or a woman 
their life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought with, at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. God's response to us, God's action towards us is to say, I love you and I want to give you a life that you haven't imagined. Not a life marked by all the earthly riches, but a life wrapped up into my life and the life of my son, a life that frees you from the sin and the desires of this world and reorients you to the way of life in my son, Jesus Christ. And it's something I believe in so much, something I desire to give you so deeply that my son's going to die for you in order to make it possible for you to enter this new life. And the question before us today is, are we going to live as this unnamed man did, only concerned for his well-being, only following God to the extent it, it doesn't cost us anything? Or are we going to live in response to the grace God gives, a grace that will cost us everything, a grace that will invite us into the life of his son who came, who died, who lived so freely for others that it cost him his life. There's another character in this story. We've mentioned him quite a bit. His name's Boaz. Boaz has been one who, through this whole story, from the time he's introduced in, in the start of chapter 2 until this end, he has consistently demonstrated the extension of God's faithfulness. He has gone out of his way to be generous. We discover that, that he greets his employees with, with the blessing of God, saying, the Lord bless you, and using that language of blessing as a way of saying, you are valued. You have a place here. You belong here. And not only did he do that for his employees who were benefiting him, he did that for others in the community. We hear that, that there were women who would come out to his field to glean behind the workers. Those women, as we understand, were like Ruth. Maybe not all of them foreigners, but certainly many of them widows or women who had fallen on times where they couldn't provide for themselves or their family. And he welcomed them into his field and he said, if you are here, I will protect you. I will watch over you. I will provide for you. I will care for you. And we see in his treatment of Ruth throughout chapter 2 and chapter 3, this overabundance of generosity. Every time she leaves, he's giving her more things to take care of her and Naomi in ways that the other man should have. We begin to see in his behavior, not just his character, but God's character. One who is generous and looking out for his people, who says, I know your needs even before you've told me, and I will take care of you, and I will walk with you. 
And we see during that story both Ruth coming to know God and to be part of God's people. And we also see in that story Naomi coming to believe that God can actually care for her. Boaz's faithfulness begins to give us a glimpse of what God's faithfulness is and how God begins to extend that faithfulness, especially in this season as we remember that faithfulness through Jesus. I don't know if you caught the family line a little bit. We'll, we'll come back to that family line, but that family line that, that goes through Boaz at the end of this chapter leads to King David, and, and as we read in the start of Matthew, that same family line is repeated. And it ends up extending all the way to Jesus himself. In other words, this whole story we've been listening to is about Jesus' great-granddaddy. I've shared it once here before, but my grandfather died on my dad's side when I was seven years old. I I don't remember much of him other than he loved candy corn. And and he always had a dish of it available when we came over. and, And I remember... I remember that candy corn so distinctly and tasting it at at such a young age that when I see it now, I can't help but think of my grandpa. It is so associated with him. When I was in high school, I went to a friend's cottage with her and a bunch of our other friends, and we went to hang out at, at the cottage for the day, and her grandparents were there. And her grandpa looked at me and said, You're a schoon. Yeah? I wasn't quite sure where this was going to go. And he said, I knew your grandpa. I served on council with him back in Illinois, or in, in Indiana at that time. I said, really? I hadn't heard many stories, so I was quite interested. I sat there and listened for a while, and he told me about a council meeting where they were arguing whether or not a person should be given uh, a benevolence assistance. And they were debating whether the person had tried hard enough on their own to meet their own needs, and, and all this debate, and they ended the meeting not sure whether or not they were going to give him any help. He said, I found out a week later that your grandpa left the meeting, went over to the guy's house, and offered him a job. I had never heard this. My dad never told me. None of my uncles or aunts had told me. I had never heard it, but I heard this story about my grandpa, and suddenly I was like, I'm glad I'm a schoon. You know, it, it was this sense of pride that came up and this sense of joy. In some sense, that's what we're hearing right now. We're hearing about Jesus' family, and we're hearing about the covenantal faithfulness that has been woven into his family line through a man named Boaz. And that type of behavior and that type of of generosity spills from generation to generation. God extending his blessings to a thousand generations for those who love him and are faithful to him. God's generosity and generous character and Jesus' great-granddaddy shows up in Jesus in a way that we can't comprehend apart from his birth, who was born and became obedient, who, as Philippians 2, took on the form of humanity, the form of a servant, and, and followed along faithfully, even to the point of death on a cross. And in the process, what we see happening through Boaz, that God is, is reclaiming his people and creating a, a space in Israel where, where God's at work extending his covenantal faithfulness and people are being wrapped into the story. Even foreigners are being brought in. We see happening through Jesus' death and resurrection. 
wasn't just for the Jewish people. It's for all people. Peter, as he's remarking about this later on, says this, once you were not a people, once you were, you were not a people, you were scattered, just like the people in the time of the judges, just like the people in the time of the exile. They were scattered all over the place. You didn't belong. But now, because of Jesus Christ, because of his death and resurrection, you actually are a people. You're the people of God. You've been brought in to his grace and to his family. Once you had not received mercy. Did you catch that? Once you were like, like the space where Elimelech and his family were. The people who were supposed to care for you, my people, God's people, didn't care for you and you were left out on your own. But now you have received mercy, just as what happened with Boaz wrapping Ruth and Naomi into this story, being wrapped in. God's covenantal faithfulness is extended and invites people in. It invites all of us in to experience God's grace in Jesus Christ. So the question as we read this story as we encounter the legacy that's in Jesus' family of God wrapping people into his kingdom, and as we remember Jesus' birth and, and anticipate his death and resurrection, we too are invited in. How will we respond to the extension of God's covenantal faithfulness? Something else is happening in this story. There's a lot more happening in this story, but, but there's redemption. The heart of this story is about people who are empty, people who are far from God, being redeemed and brought back into God's family, back into his home and into his kingdom. It's really an echo of, of what's been happening all along. You see, way back, way before the time of the judges, before Joshua and Moses, there's this family guy named Abram that God called and when God called Abram he gave him a new name and said Abraham which means the father of many peoples and he said to him I'm going to bless you in order that all peoples on earth might be blessed all people will be blessed through you and this story shows that movement there's Naomi and even Elimelech and Kilion and Malon after they've died, their family is being blessed and being brought in. They're experiencing redemption through Boaz's generosity, through God's care for them. There's Ruth, the Moabite. She's a foreigner who had no right or claim to God's people. And, and through this story, God's bringing her in and saying, you actually belong in this family. You belong here. And along with being a foreigner, she's also a widow who had no children. Do you hear the undertones? Do you remember the story of what happened with Abram and Sarah? Sarah was barren. She was 80-some years old and had no children. She had a sense of that her whole life had been empty. And God gives her the gift of Isaac and, and through Isaac, this blessing that continues to move on. And Isaac's wife too, Rachel, had been barren and had not had children. And Jacob's wife, Rebecca, had been barren. Did you catch the line in this story? 
God enabled Ruth to conceive. It's right into that storyline of God extending his promises, redeeming people and saying, you are part of this family, you belong. And even to Ruth, who had been an outcast, she's brought into the storyline of God's people. But it goes even further. If you read this family line when it occurs in Matthew, you know who Boaz's mom is? Rahab. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab who ran a brothel in Jericho. Rahab who hid the spies, who made a very similar confession to what Ruth makes in this chapter. Your God will be my God. I know your God is coming and he's going to make the whole of this country and this land new and it's going to belong to you. I know that and I look to that God. She's wrapped into God's story and God's people and Boaz, who's half Jewish and half Jericho background, becomes the servant of God's faithfulness in this story. He's wrapped in. He experiences God's redemption. His family line is being redeemed and wrapped into God's story of faithfulness. And also the people of Bethlehem. Do you notice in this story how their posture change? They're quite indifferent at the beginning. They, along with the other kinsmen redeemer, have ignored the plight of Elimelech and his family. They haven't extended the care that should have been extended. And by the end of this story, they're sitting around the elders of the city and they're praising and blessing this foreigner. They're blessing Ruth and Boaz and and saying, may the Lord bless you and cause you to be like Leah and Rachel. May God's blessings flow through you. May you be part of Perez's family line. May the Lord prosper you. Suddenly a people who didn't care are pronouncing God's blessings. And the women who, who were wondering at the beginning, could that be Naomi? Really? Is that Naomi? And they're gossiping, and this sense of talking behind her back are now sitting at her feet as her grandchild is put on her lap. And they begin to delight and wonder and praise God for what he has done. They too are experiencing redemption. So the question for us, how will we celebrate and respond to God's redemption, which beckons each person to come to faith in Jesus Christ? There's this passage that that Paul says to the Galatians, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This story shows that. This story of of what's happened with Ruth and Naomi and the people of, of Bethlehem opens our eyes to the wonder of God's redemption that is for all people, including us. And it invites us to come to Christ and to know him and God's salvation that's extended through him. How will you respond to that offer, that invitation to be part of God's people? Who has a favorite Christmas song? Do you have a favorite Christmas song? No? 
Anyone? Kaisa, what's your favorite Christmas song? Oh, Mary, did you know? Yeah, I heard Joy to the World. One of my favorite ones is the Do you hear what I hear? Right? Do you see what I see? You know where we end up? We end up as witnesses to the gospel according to Ruth. Three times in this last chapter is the phrase, you are witnesses, and the response, we are witnesses. This book is masterfully written to draw us in so that we take the place of the people who are sitting there at the gates as we witness this redemption happening. We've been on this journey with Ruth and we started in that hopelessness with her. That space where nothing made sense and and we wondered alongside Naomi, has God turned his hand against me? And we journeyed alongside Naomi and Ruth as they experienced God's faithfulness and then his redemption and, and then the fulfillment of a promise. And a sense of wonder comes up inside of us as we watch all this happening and and we're drawn closer to the wonder of Jesus' birth. Seeing God step by step unfold his grace in this story. A God who is taking people from emptiness and bringing them to a fullness of life they have not imagined possible. And then the story ends. Did you notice where it ends? It ends with a baby being born in Bethlehem. How fitting for us. How fitting for us in this season to end in that space. That wonder and the awe of of being gathered around the, the birth of a child to be gathered around the birth of a child in Bethlehem who who in many ways foreshadows what would happen when God sends his own son Jesus to be born. A child of promise, an unexpected child, a gift that came in a time when, when the people thought there was no hope, when they were overrun by a foreign power, when they thought God had forgotten about them. John, in describing it, says, at just the right time. Just the right time, God sent his son to be born. We're invited not into a place of worry and fear, but to a place of joy and wonder as we watch the Savior being born. Tonight, we have an opportunity to enter that story to see it over the full scope of the Old Testament as God's promises lead to the birth of Jesus. Next week, Sunday, we have an opportunity to gather together as we enter into that story again and celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. It is one that we are invited to come into with joy and wonder. And ultimately, it is one that leads us to an invitation to respond. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. 
this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. The shepherds get up and they run to Bethlehem. What will we do? Will we go and see this baby who is born King of the Jews, Savior of the world, and our Redeemer? Let's pray. We thank you for this invitation, Lord, to enter into Ruth's story, to journey alongside her with a a sense of wonder and curiosity at what you are about to do. We pray, Lord, that just as you transformed and renewed Naomi and her family and Ruth and her family and as you worked through Boaz and brought him in, that you too would bring us more fully into your grace, your love your family. Help us to come to Christ, to see him as your salvation. It's the one who was born to die, to rise, and to come back again. May you make us whole and holy, we pray. In Christ Jesus, amen. Invite us to stand and sing together in response, I will change your name. Please stand.